You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long way to go. It's a long way to Tipperary. To the sweetest girl I know. Hello everyone and welcome to History of the Great War episode 227. This week I would like to thank Norman for their PayPal donation, as well as to remind everyone that you can help support this podcast and get access to special Patreon-only episodes over at patreon.com slash historyofthegreatwar. After the Irish Civil War started in June 1922, there was serious fighting in various areas around the 26 counties of Ireland. However, by early 1923, any major fighting had ended. That did not mean that all of the fighting was finished, and after some early fighting had put the Republican army at a clear disadvantage, they had altered their strategy from one of somewhat traditional warfare to one that focused on smaller groups of more mobile and dedicated soldiers. Today we'll be discussing the fate of those groups in 1923, as the Irish Civil War slowly came to an end. Then we will discuss some of the post-war political developments. These developments would see the future of Ireland solidified and would begin the process of transitioning from the Irish Free State into a fully independent Republic of Ireland. While the fighting was still ongoing in late 1922, political developments continued to alter the situation on both sides. For the provisional government, this meant the opening of the Third Doll, which would begin meeting in September. Their first major item on the agenda was to move the constitution through the doll so that it could be properly put in place, which would turn the provisional government into the free state government. On the Republican side, the opening of the doll sparked off what would be a pretty major disagreement on the political side of the Republican movement. There were three paths that the Republicans could take. They could join in the government, which would be a statement that they recognized its authority and its legitimacy. Many of the Republican military leaders, especially, spoke out strongly against this option. The second option was that they could create a new Republican government of some kind. In late September, Ernie O'Malley would say to Liam Lynch, the Republican army leader, that, quote, We consider it imperative that some form of government, whether a provisional or a Republican or a military one, should be inaugurated at once. It is indeed time to turn our attention to a constructive policy, end quote. 
De Valera was in favor of this path, but there were serious, practical challenges to creating a new Republican government and having it publicly meet. They were, at this point, not exactly in the good graces of the provisional government, and so any official meeting of the Republican leaders would probably just end up in several of them being arrested. The third option, and also the default option, and also the one that the Republicans would land on, was to just continue on, without a unified political leadership and a dispersed and uncoordinated military strategy. It was not ideal, but it did not entail the need for the Republican leaders to come to any form of an agreement. While the fighting in the country ebbed and flowed throughout the last half of 1922, in November the provisional government introduced a policy of executions for those who were captured during the Civil War. Generally men who were arrested in provisional controlled areas while trying to perform some sort of violence were the ones targeted for these executions. The first executions would be performed on November 17th, with five men who had been arrested in Dublin. These executions were divisive, even among representatives in the Dáil. O'Higgins and the others who would defend these actions would say that they had to do it because it was a deterrent against further violence. Obviously, the Republican leaders did not look on them very kindly, and the official Republican policy, as accepted and published by Liam Lynch, was for a series of reprisals against provisional leaders. However, there was little actual action taken on this policy. At a higher level, there were concerns that if reprisals began, then they would just lead to more executions, which would demand more reprisals, which would then lead to more executions, so on and so forth. At a local level, there was also resistance to reprisals due to the effect that they would have on local communities. In this resistance, it's easy to point out the difference between the provisional government and the leaders of these small Republican military units. The provisional leaders were, like many national political groups, detached from the situation on the ground. The leaders of the Republican military units were often the opposite. They were heavily involved in local affairs, and any reprisals against local individuals would have been harmful to those local communities, and probably would have brought upon those communities greater control from the provisional army. This all meant that instead of outright killing people, many Republican units instead turned to a policy of kidnapping of government officials and the destruction of government property. In the last month of 1922, and then the first few months of 1923, the situation in Ireland would drastically change. On December 6th, the House of Commons in London would pass the act officially creating the Irish Free State. At the same time, the military situation for the now Free State Army was beginning to greatly improve. Part of this improvement was due to the improvements made to the Free State Army since its inception. This included a reorganization of the Army's commands. Several of the larger Army commands were split into several smaller ones, and a new Western Command was also created. Now this upset some of the longer-serving army leaders, especially those that traced their service back to and had been close with Michael Collins in the pre-Anglo-Irish War IRB. The government's ability to push through the reforms against the wishes of these officers represented an important turning point when the political leaders were able to finally fully control the military. Along with these high-level reforms, several smaller reforms were put in place to increase the effectiveness of the military units themselves like a more formal officer training program and a proper disciplinary code. These changes in the Free State Army represented just one part of why the military situation in Ireland was shifting. The other was the continued deterioration of the Republican position. 
By the end of 1922, the new structure of small military columns was in place on the Republican side, but it almost immediately began to experience problems. Several of the columns in the regions that should have seen the strongest Republican support had either been destroyed by the Free State Army or due to simple disintegration. This included areas like South Tipperary and Cork, where if things were going well for the Republicans, their support should have been strongest. This wastage of Republican strength made any large military action impossible, and there was little prospect of the situation swinging back in favor of the Republicans. Supplying and financing the columns was becoming more difficult, and this pushed more men to give up the fighting entirely. With prospects looking so bleak for the Republicans, it was only natural that many of its leaders began to look for some sort of negotiating position with the Free State leaders. Generally, the political leaders on the Republican side, those like De Valera, were the strongest supporters of improving relations with the Free State. De Valera himself was already beginning to prepare other Republican leaders for compromises that he knew they would have to make. Always on the other side of these discussions were the military leaders, Liam Lynch uh, top among them. Lynch was a hardcore, whatever-it-takes-no-compromises Republican, and he was also maybe in some amount of denial about just how bad the situation was for the Republican cause. Given his position within the movement and the loyalty of the military to him, he was always in a position to block any pro proper peace overtures. But then, on April 10, 1923, he was killed. On that day, near Newcastle in Tipperary, he and several other Republicans were surrounded by Free State troops, and carrying nothing but sidearms, they tried to flee up into the hills. Liam would not make it, and he would be hit by bullets, dying later that night. Lynch's death completely changed the makeup and outlook of the Republican leaders, and it moved the pro-peace leaders into a much more prominent position. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. At the Explorers Podcast, we plunge into jungles and deserts, across mighty oceans and frigid ice caps, over and to the top of great mountains, and even into outer space. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventurers from throughout history. So come give us a listen. We'd love to have you. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. It would also give these leaders far greater control, control that was officially put in place by a meeting on April 20th. At this meeting, Frank Aiken, who took over for Lynch as chief of staff, proposed that they begin negotiations with the Free State government. 
In his wording, these negotiations would be based on the idea that, quote, the sovereignty of the Irish nation and the integrity of its territory is inalienable. This motion would pass, and de Valera would be put in charge of the negotiations. While the acceptance that negotiations were necessary was an important step, the Republican demands in these negotiations were far beyond anything that the free state leaders would accept. They were un unwilling to compromise on the constitutional issues, which were the core part of the Republican position. De Valera refused to even sign a document acknowledging that the free state was the legitimate government of Ireland. And with such a vast chasm between the two positions, an agreement was never really possible at this first meeting. After this failure, the Republican leaders would meet again on May 13th, and after much discussion, Aiken would publish an order, which would be distributed on May 24th. They would order all of the military units to stop fighting, to hide their arms and ammunition, and rejoin society. Along with this order, de Valera would send out a note saying, quote, Further sacrifice on your part would now be vain, and continuance of the struggle in arms unwise in the national interest. Military victory must be allowed to rest for the moment with those who have destroyed the Republic. These orders, necessary in retrospect, did meet with resistance from some of the remaining Republican military officers. De Valera would answer one of these complaints from Mary McSweeney by saying, quote, you speak as if we are dictating terms and talk of a military situation. There is no military situation. The situation now is that we have to shepherd the remnant of our forces out of this fight so as not to destroy whatever hope remains in the future by allowing the fight to peter out ignominiously. With these orders, the Civil War just kind of stopped. There was not an official negotiated peace between the Free State and the Republicans, the Republicans just stopped fighting. The proclamations from Aiken and de Valera, which called for an end to the fighting, were generally followed, and there was little fighting after they were issued in late May. This caused the Republican movement to enter kind of a moment of crisis, without a clear path forward, with some members continuing to look back to try and determine how they failed. The point of greatest criticism on this path was the failure of the Republican military, but regardless of what they thought of past decisions, they had to start moving forward. The question became how to actually move forward, and in this they were, as usual, split into several different camps. There were those who I would categorize as the more die-hard members of the Republican movement that stuck strongly to their policy of non-recognition of the free state government. Those who held this view could not participate either in elections or the government in general, because to do so would provide the government with de facto recognition. It was among these Republicans that the idea of taking up their arms again at some point in the future was held on to the longest, a possibility introduced by Aiken's order to hide their arms instead of surrendering them to the free state authorities. De Valera would instead advocate for participation in the elections of August 1923, he admitted that taking this action would be to recognize the Free State Authority, but he tried to be pragmatic about it, saying, quote, To declare them illegal and to stand aside is dictated by the idea of a continued existence of the Republic, but as a practical political policy, to my mind, it is not the best. The more progress we make at the coming elections, the more certain will be our victory at the subsequent elections, end quote. Even if they were elected, it is unlikely that Republican members of the Dáil would actually participate in the government, since doing so required that they take that dreaded oath of allegiance. 
Those that were elected would instead opt to maintain the old Sinn Féin abstention policy. With de Valera certain that participating in the election was the correct path, he now had to find a way to actually make that happen. At this point, the Republican leaders were still in hiding, but then on August 15th, de Valera made a public speech in the town of Ennis. De Valera was pretty sure that he was going to get arrested. And so his goal was to make sure that if he was arrested, the Free State would have to do so while he was speaking in public at a meeting regarding the Free State elections. This would provide him with a great angle of attack against the government that went to great lengths to maintain that they were the legitimate, democratically elected Irish government. As he suspected, de Valera would be arrested and he would spend the rest of 1923 in prison. While the remaining Republican leaders were trying to determine the future of their movement, there was one aspect that they did not control, and that was the future of the Republican prisoners that were still being held by the Free State. By the end of May 1923, there were about 12,000 Republicans in prison. This caused lengthy debates among the Free State leaders about when and how to release them. There would always be those leaders who advocated for holding on to these prisoners for a longer period of time out of fear that if they were released too soon, then they might reignite the fighting. However, continuing to detain them increased tensions in the prisons and around the country, and eventually this tension would begin to cause its own problems. In October, the prisoners would take the step of beginning a hunger strike. The hunger strike would begin in the Mount Joy prison. At the time, at the beginning of this hunger strike, it was strictly to protest conditions within that one prison. But when news of the actions in Mount Joy spread to other prisoners in other prisons, they joined the hunger strike as well. Republican leaders would claim that 8,000 men would join in the strike, although the number was probably a bit smaller. Hunger strikes were not a new form of protest, and they had been effective in the past. But they had to be executed by dedicated individuals, and if properly thought out, they made for an incredibly powerful public statement. This hunger strike was not well thought out. There was general confusion about the specific objectives of the strike, who could call it off for what reason, and who should join. This meant that in many cases the strike began to break down after about three weeks. Some men wanted to continue, but others decided to end it, and this caused strife among the prisoners. Eventually, with various individuals in various prisons having already taken food, it was officially called off on November 23rd. This led to more confusion, especially among those who were still game to continue. Like one cork man who would write, I would rather have faced the firing squad than call it off. But there were divisional officers ordering their men off. End quote. Overall, I think that much like the small column strategy, the hunger strike was initially led by very dedicated individuals. But it was a concept that was difficult to execute on a larger scale. Hunger strikes depend almost entirely on individual dedication. You need people who, and this sounds kind of morbid, are willing to go all the way. To do this for an idea requires a very specific type of person. And when the strikes spread out to the prisons, many joined who probably did not fully understand what they were opting into, or they were being pulled along by events. And only later did they discover the intensely personal aspect of such a struggle. The Free State would try to take advantage of the event and used it to apply pressure to get prisoners to sign pledges of loyalty in exchange for both food and freedom. Overall, the strike would be seen as a failure, but it did also make some changes to Free State policy. It forced those leaders to accelerate their plans to release prisoners, 
although they would only do so in stages, out of fear that if they released too many too quickly, it would appear that such actions were caused by the strike, which they didn't want to do. By the summer of 1924, seven months after the strike ended, the only prisoners who remained in those prisons were those who were actually convicted of precise criminal acts during the fighting. With the fighting and some of the political aftermath settled in the South, it's time to turn our eyes back to the North, just briefly. During the fighting, the Northern counties had been almost entirely untouched, and we discussed some of the reasons for this last episode. Basically, with the support of the South cut off during the fighting, the Northern IRA essentially went into forced hibernation. After the fighting was over, the Northern IRA was back, but it was in an awkward position. Some of its strongest supporters had been among the Republican leaders, who were obviously in no position to influence free state policy. This was coupled with an official change in free state policy, with the southern government basically no longer questioning northern legitimacy. They also made the decision to no longer openly support subversive obstruction of the northern government. The free state government could not take the next step of officially recognizing the northern government, but they mostly just stopped helping those who were actively fighting against it. These changes were not popular in the Northern IRA, obviously, who now felt that they'd been abandoned by the Free State. These changes would lead into the Border Commission. If you remember back to our earlier episodes, the theory behind the acceptance by the Southern leaders of the existence of Northern Ireland, at least initially, was the future Boundary Commission. At the time, they hoped to be able to use this commission to peel off some pieces of the six Northern counties. This... In theory, when combined with the actions of the Northern IRA, would destabilize the Northern government. However, when the commission actually began in 1924, the situation had changed, and the Northern government had solidified its position throughout the course of the Civil War. The initial draft of the commission was met with extreme skepticism when it leaked to the press, and so instead of putting into effect, the, the commission actually retracted it and did not put anything in its place. With this action, Northern Ireland became an established fact, but none of the problems that made it so contentious were actually solved. Instead of peace in Northern Ireland, there would instead be decades of uncertainty, with the Unionists and the Nationalists never fully resolving their disagreements. Before the Boundary Commission would be created in 1924, there would be elections in the South in 1923, and these elections would be remarkably positive for the Republicans. During these elections, they would gain 44 seats against 63 that would be gained by the, and I apologize for this pronunciation, Kumenenayo Party, which was the party that represented the free state government from during the Civil War. While they were obviously in the minority, 44 seats was still pretty good for a party that had just months before been an open revolt against the government. If anything, it proved that the Republican cause had widespread support among the 26 counties, even if it did not enjoy that support during the Civil War. This was great for the Republicans. There was just one small problem if they wanted to enter the doll. They had to take that oath of allegiance to the king. This would prevent any Republican representatives from participating in the government for years to come. The oath had been the foundation of the Sinn Féin uh, abstention policy from London, and this tradition would be continued in the Free State and in Dublin by the Republicans, who were still using that Sinn Féin name. For three years, the Kumenenayo uh, would not face any official opposition, for at least from the largest uh, opposition group, which was the Republicans. There were other smaller parties that had a few seats here and there. The subject of the oath would be very divisive among the Republican leaders. 
Once again, the battle lines between the two groups had De Valera on one side and Sinn Féin absolutists on the other. These disagreements would eventually lead De Valera and his supporters to walk out of the 1926 Sinn Féin annual conference. They would then go on to uh, found Fianna Fáil, which in 1927 would join the Dáil, taking the oath which they claimed was meaningless. With Fianna Fáil participating in the Dáil, 1927 would mark the year when Irish politics would begin to revert back to something approaching normality. In 1932, Fianna Fáil would win the majority of the Dáil, and, and De Valera would become Prime Minister, an office he would occupy for the following 16 years. During that time, he would be able to make changes that, from the perspective of the 1920s, would have been incredibly radical. In 1937, the Free State would be abolished, and a new constitution was adopted, creating the Republic of Ireland. At that point, the dreams of the Republican supporters during the Civil War were realized albeit in a way that they never could have imagined. In the end, it would be politics and not violence that would see the Republic created, under the guidance of de Valera, who was at one point imprisoned due to his views on the government. History's really full of twists and turns sometimes, and there's no way of knowing how things are going to end up. Thank you for listening to this series of episodes on the Irish Civil War. I hope you will join me next episode as we begin the final series of the podcast. And in it, we are going to go back kind of to where the podcast began, back to Germany, where we will discuss the aftermath of the war in that country in the early 1920s. <laughs>